The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Welcome to the Heritage Sunday Morning Small Group. I'm glad you could join us today. That's my joke, small group, because there's very few people here. Huh? Funny? That's all I got. Sorry. Apologize. Thank you. Welcome, sincerely. Uh, uh, it, it's, the snow has been great. It reminds us of Christmases back in Wisconsin. We're so thankful for the white Christmas. You know, I was thinking about today being the last Sunday of 2021. I remember last year on the last Sunday of 2020, and remember how tough 2020 was with the pandemic and just all the stuff that happened. And I remember us kind of celebrating this, believing that 2021 was going to be a much better year than 2020. Well, they can't all be winners. And so we're going to have great hope for 2022. It's going to be a great year. Uh, I am sincerely, as I've been looking at this this Sunday, I've been thinking about, okay, like the faithfulness of God over the last year and just thinking about where God is leading us as a church in this coming year and uh, just kind of reflective and, and thinking about how, what, what, what can we do this morning as a church gathered here the day after Christmas happens to be a snowstorm in a way that would um, rightly orient our hearts in, a, in appreciation for the faithfulness of God over the last year and in hopeful anticipation for the faithfulness of God in the coming year. And as I think about that, I think about our, uh, the, the series that we've been in o- over the last several weeks. We were in the Gospel of Mark, have been since um, September, but we paused at the end of November, and we decided to do this special series called, called Giving the Greatest Gift, and we've sort of hovered into the, the book of, of Luke. We've sort of, we've, we've taught out of Luke and kind of covered the whole book in just four or five weeks. Today we're in our final uh, pit stop in that series. Next, next week we'll, we'll be back in Luke. But I've been kind of just thinking through this series where we talked about what does it mean for us as a church to, to, to see the world as God sees the world and, and to see the stranger as neighbor and, and to see the neighbor as friend and to see the friend as family of God. And we've talked about kind of personal mission or evangelism. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, we've tried to be thoughtful in handing out a handful of resources that can help us think along these lines. And so way back in November when we started, we, uh, Pastor Aaron te- taught, and he, we looked at the birth narrative of Jesus in, in Luke chapter 2. And then we had a, a, an evening of prayer. And so we had this, this resource, just called, we called it Let Us Pray, and we, we encouraged and invited our whole congregation to kind of gather virtually on a Thursday night and for us to pray for Southern Oregon, Jackson County, the Rogue Valley. And we kind of just invited everybody to pray, to ask God to give us his eyes and to give us his heart that we can see the world around us the way he sees it. And then the next week we, we looked uh, in uh, uh, the, the story of the, great, the Good Samaritan and we asked this question, who is my neighbor? Because that's what the religious authority, uh, the, the religious lawyer asked Jesus and that's what sparked his parable of the Good Samaritan, who is my neighbor? And we began to ask God to give us eyes to see the stranger among us as neighbor. And then we gave you guys this neighboring map, this resource, and we encouraged you to think of the, 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 the neighbor that is quite literally right next to you. Your physical neighbors within the neighborhood in which you live or the apartment building in which you live, your neighbors by vocation, neighbors by relation. And we ask you to put together a neighboring map and begin to pray pointed prayers for the people God has put in your midst that he might use you uh, to, 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 to bring them to the Lord. And then, and then the next week after that, we, we talked about, uh, we're not just praying for Jackson County, we're not just praying for our immediate neighbors, we began to just pray over our homes, and we asked, we, we looked at the text of Jesus speaking about, about how to have banquets when he spoke to some of the religious teachers in, in Luke 14, 
And then we said, look at our own table. Our table is a resource that God has given us, a place for us to gather our neighbors and friends and, and to love our neighbor so that they can become friend at our very table, to break bread, to have fellowship, to invite Jesus to that table. And we gave you a tool called Consecrating the Dining Room Table, and we encouraged you to go through this practice or this exercise as a family where you gather around your table and you recognize that that table is a gift from God to be used as a resource to be on mission for him among your neighbors. And then last week, if you were here, Pastor Jeremy kind of, he, he wrapped up the, the actionable aspect of the series, and, and he talked about what it means for us to then share the gospel, to see the stranger as neighbor, to love the neighbor as friend, and to invite this friend into the family of God requires that we proclaim the good news about Jesus to them in the context of love and in the context of relationship. And so we gave you a resource called Sharing the Gospel, and on that resource, Jeremy gave us a very practical way to think about how you and I can begin to share the gospel. We looked at the road to Emmaus, Jesus' interaction with those disciples on the road to Emmaus in, in Luke 24. And then Jer- Jeremy introduced us to this acronym, S-A-L-T, start a conversation. When we begin to engage with our neighbors, we, we start a conversation. We get to know who they are. We ask questions and we respond to the questions that we ask. And then, and then the third part of the L that, that was to listen. And this might be a day. This might be over a course of a week. You might listen to your neighbor over the course, or your friends over the course of of a year, over the course of a decade, over the course of 50 years. You never know. But when you're in relationship with someone and your desire is to see them one to Christ, you listen and you ask questions and you respond thoughtfully. You invite them into your life and you begin to model the gospel and share the gospel so that ultimately you might have the opportunity to tell God's story and how you became a part of it that you might be able to invite your neighbors and friends into the very family of God. Amen? It's been such an encouraging series for me, challenging for me to think missionally. The other day, my neighbor, I took my garbage down and my neighbor was across the street and he actually started the conversation. I leapt on it like a lion. I was so excited to start a conversation with him. I probably freaked him out, but I've been praying for my neighbors, asking God to open up opportunities for me to to get to know them better. And he actually talked to me first and we had this awesome conversation. We exchanged numbers, began to text. It was wonderful. And so that's what the series has, has woken up in me, this desire for me personally and my family to live missionally in our community. My hope is that it's done the same for you. Today I want us to finish by, by just, and, and Mitch talked about this a minute ago, I want us just to worship today. I just want us to worship today. My hope today as we gather in this place, my, my simple hope is that we will together look to Jesus and, and just respond in worship. Would you look with me at Luke 24 real quick? I want to look at the last few verses of Luke's gospel as we kind of finish our series in, go- in Luke's gospel. But I want to look at just the last four verses for right now. We'll be back in Luke, so, so keep your, your Bible open to this location. But Luke chapter 24, the last four verses of Luke's gospel, he talks about uh, the ascension of Jesus and the response of the apostles. Beginning in verse 50. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany... And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And here's the response of the apostles. And they worshipped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. After receiving this blessing from Jesus, after witnessing the ascension of Christ into heaven, the response of these apostles is fourfold. They worship Jesus... They return to Jerusalem in obedience to the words of Jesus. They have great joy because of Jesus, and they continually bless God. 
Finally, after 23 and a half chapters of the disciples struggling to put two and two together, struggling to understand who Jesus was in his fullness, they begin to see him in his fullness here in the aftermath of his ascension. And, and, I, and I've thought about the, the very human experience of these men and women on that day. Can you imagine the human experience of this? These were people who had walked with Jesus, had been discipled under his leadership or his tutelage for three years. They saw his teachings, his miracles, his authority, raising people from the dead, casting out demons, making the sick well, giving sight to the blind, removing leprosy from the lepers. They saw Jesus enter the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, uh, and they saw him confront the religious authority. They saw him get arrested, and they saw him go through a sham of a trial at the hands of Pontius Pilate. They saw him uh, have to drag his cross out of the city uh, as blood is, is draining out of him. They saw Jesus nailed to a cross between two thieves. They felt as the earth went uh, shook at the death of Jesus. They saw the sky go dark. They had to deal with the, the, the difficulty on that first Good Friday of watching their rabbi, their teacher, their leader, who they thought was an earthly king. They had to watch him die, and they had to reconcile that in their hearts. All their expectations seemed to be dashed in a moment. The earth shook, the sky went black, and they, they, they retreated back to their hiding places as their, as their leader was gone. They sat in absolute despair on that silent Saturday, not knowing what to do, totally disoriented, having no clue what God was up to in the midst of this loss. And then they discovered an empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday. And they were bewildered. They didn't know what to do. Angels spoke to them and said, no, he is risen. The, the, the women ran back and they reported this to the apostles. The apostles went and saw the empty tomb. They didn't know what to think. They didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, Jesus makes himself known to them. We'll unpack that here in a minute, but it all manifests here in verse 50. As Jesus, 40 days after his resurrection, he leads these disciples out to the Mount of Olives a couple of miles from Jerusalem. It's where he, it's where he began his triumphal entry. It's now he's being exalted into heaven. And can you imagine what was going on in their hearts as they're walking out to the hill, walking out to the mountain, walking out to Bethany? And then what happens in the heart and mind of a human being with all our human limitations and all our inability to understand the supernatural is they're on their face before Jesus looking at his sandaled feet when his feet lifted from the soil. And they saw his feet rising in their midst and clouds from heaven reached down and wrapped Jesus and pulled him in their very presence into heaven out of their sight in the presence of angels. What does that do in the heart or in the mind of a mere mortal? It's incredible. And as I look at those men and women on that day, I see their response. They worshiped Jesus. They were obedient to the words of Jesus. They had great joy because of Jesus. And they blessed God continually because of what he'd done in and through Jesus. So here's my hope today. This last Sunday of the year, my hope is that together as the church, we will look at Jesus and respond in worship. That's my hope. Because I believe that when we see Jesus for who he really is, I believe the only right response is worship. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us in this place today? God, I think of the men and women today who are tuning in online because the roads were awful. It's the day after Christmas. I'm thankful for the technology that allows the body of Christ here at Heritage to gather physically and virtually. God, we are together in spirit. Thank you for the men and women in this room and God, thank you for what you're doing in our lives individually. Thank you what you're doing in our life corporately as your church. And God, as we reflect back on your activity over the course of our lives, over the course of the life of this church, over the course of the last year, is with, with hopeful anticipation of what you have planned for the future, God, as we look hopefully into the future, God, I pray today, at this time and in this moment, God, you would continue to reveal to us what it means for us to see you 
for who you really are. And God, would you help us understand what it means for us to worship you with all of ourselves for your glory. Meet us in this place. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first became a pastor, I remember going to a conference or a workshop or something, and I remember the, the breakout session I was at, this guy was going to draw a diagram of what the, the, the secret of ministry was, and I was pretty jacked, because I, I love diagrams, simple things, and so we had like this whiteboard, and he drew a stage, and he drew a cross on the stage, and then over here he drew the congregation, whether that's youth or adults, whatever your context was, and he said, here's the secret of ministry. There's the congregation or the people. Here's the stage and here's the cross, which reflects Jesus. He said, here's the secret of ministry. And he drew a picture of a guy, a little stick figure, figure of a guy on the stage, waving his arms. And as the people looked at the guy on the stage waving his arms, he said, your job is to get the attention of the people and then get out of the way so they see Jesus. I'm not saying I agree with that illustration. It stuck with me in my little 27-year-old brain, brand new in ministry, trying to figure that out. And so uh, that kind of, that simple illustration informed the way I thought about ministry for a lot of years. But somewhere along the way, uh, I, I wasn't satisfied with just getting attention of people so I could point them to Jesus. I was, I was actually more satisfied when I got the attention of the people and it stayed on me. And, and then I, I also began to believe because I wasn't so much dieting daily on the beauty of who Jesus is or the depth of the gospel. I wasn't necessarily in a deep abiding worship in my own personal life. I began to become convinced that it was my job to sort of dress up the gospel, to make it more attractive, more palpable, so people would want to, to be attracted to Jesus. I, I, was, I was cutting my teeth in ministry at that time in a church that was obsessed with the attractional model, and so we were all about having everything you could possibly have on your campus that people would drive for miles around to be at your church, and so that really had seeped into my thinking. And so what happened was, functionally, along the way, I began to demote God— not on purpose, and I began to elevate other things, whether that be my own personal charisma or dynamic communication skills or phenomenal facilities or attractional programs or riveting stories or an electric atmosphere. I would do anything that I could do to make my church more attractive because I thought that was, that's what I was supposed to do. And I thought that Jesus by himself just wasn't attractive enough. It was antiquated. It was old. People weren't paying attention. So I'm putting lipstick on the gospel trying to dress up the gospel, because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to get everyone's attention and then get out of the way, so I made it about me, unbeknownst to myself. And, and it's interesting, all these years later, when I think about—I planted a church about 10 years ago in Milwaukee. When I think about some of the common literature that exists within church planting forums— about what it takes to, to successfully plant a church today. I see a lot of the same language. I'm not saying it's, it's not good wisdom, but it's really easy to, to misinterpret the guidance that's often given to church planters as a kind of a me-focused, God-demoting philosophy. You, I've read in literature, if you do these five things, your church is going to grow. And I don't see any mention of God by his spirit growing his church. I don't see any mention of faithful proclamation of gospel. I see them saying, you've got to have um, plenty of convenient parking and very clean, accessible bathrooms. A really fun and attractional children's ministry. you got to have a great location where lots of people can see it. Good website, great communication skills, and dynamic, attracted, attractive, highly skilled and talented people on the pulpit. If you do that, you're going to grow a church. No mention of the gospel, no mention of Jesus. And unfortunately, for a season, you see churches blow up that, 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 that live according to these guidances, but then it's like there's, just, there's no substance there. And I've seen ministries blow up with a lot of people and then just dwindle because there's nothing. It's just, it's smoke, it's hevel, it's, there's nothing there. And so 
I come to believe that if my philosophy in ministry is about upholding a formula or about an immaculate facility or about a prescribed program and not about Jesus, God help us. God help us. I remember as a youth pastor, I was trying to get the biggest youth ministry I could possibly gather. And my first or second year, I wanted to do this big year-end thing. And so I had this big celebration in the field by our church across the street from the high school, invited the world, and a bunch of kids showed up. And I wanted to play a really fun game of Ultimate Frisbee. You guys ever played Ultimate Frisbee or Ultimate Football? So I thought, yeah, well, it's a huge game of Ultimate Frisbee, but a Frisbee's not cool enough, nor is a football. So let's get a dead octopus. That sounds like a good plan. So I ordered a dead octopus. I drove to Green Bay to grab it, came back, and we played Ultimate Octopus. And the kids loved it. They laughed. We had a blast. I was proud of myself because tons of kids came. And then a guy who I really respect, a retired pastor, he said to me, Paul, hey, you know what, Paul? So you had a lot of kids there on Wednesday night. Um, but you know, what you win them with, you win them too. And that little sentence was a dagger in my heart. I thought, what am I winning kids with? It's not the gospel. Ultimate octopus brought a lot of kids. I'm not sure if it changed any lives. In the name of attracting people to Jesus, I was actually getting in the way of people seeing Jesus. People were coming to church in search of Jesus, but I was failing to to uphold Jesus as he really is. What? A tragedy. Not so anymore. That's what's clear to me now. Maybe it's clear to us as a church that when we see Jesus for who he really is, when we uphold Jesus for who he really is, the only logical response is worship. And that's my argument for today's sermon. If people want to ask you, what did you guys talk about at church today? Here it is. When we see Jesus as he really is, the only right response is worship. When there is worship of Jesus, there is personal and corporate transformation. When there is worship of Jesus, there is rich and authentic community that takes place. When there is authentic worship of Jesus, disciples of Jesus are made. When there is worship of Jesus, mission becomes an outflow of the church and not a program. And as we look at our text here today, go back to Luke 24. I want us to look at these disciples and their response to the risen and ascended Jesus on that day. I want us to look at verse 36, and let's just begin to look and see... Let's begin to look and see the way these apostles were responding and what informed that worship that we see in the final two verses. Now, all of chapter 24 is is, uh, uh, up from chapter 24, verse 1, until verse 49 is one day. It's Easter Sunday. In in verse 50, we get into another day. But in this one day, I've already unpacked it. It was Easter Sunday, the empty tomb, all this stuff, the road to Emmaus, all this interaction, questions, and and, and, and where we kind of bring our focus in on verse 36, like the tomb had been discovered empty, a handful of the apostles and disciples had had seen and interacted with the risen Christ. They're all gathered back in Jerusalem. Their minds are collectively blown. What they thought was a horrible defeat, the moment of greatest despair, is somehow it's become something else. They haven't been able to connect all the dots just yet, but they're sharing stories of like the tomb was empty. The angels said that he had risen. The guys on the road to Emmaus said, our hearts burned within us as he was speaking to us, and then our eyes were opened, and we saw that we were interacting with the risen Jesus, and they're telling these stories with amazement, and that's where we pick up in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet 
And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it. And he ate it before them. What a scene. In the midst of them sharing these stories, these disconnected stories that they couldn't quite fathom, as they're trying to connect all the dots, Jesus is suddenly in their midst. Alive. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He appears in physical form. He shows them the scars in his hands and in his feet. They get to interact with his body, his, his glorified yet-to-be-ascended body. And with astonishment, they stand there doubting and filled with joy and wonder. And to prove the physicality of his resurrection, he says, you got anything to eat? And the risen Christ eats broiled fish. What a weird and bizarre feature that Luke chooses to include in this gospel. But the whole point is that his body was, was literal. It was physical. It was there. He wasn't a figment of their imagination. He wasn't a ghost or a spirit. It wasn't a mass hallucination. Jesus Christ was alive and resurrected and in their presence. These men and women had seen Jesus live. They had seen or heard of his death, and here he is in their presence living again. It's, in, it's insane. And they're gathered together, and they're trying to put the dots together of everything that they had just experienced. And then Jesus begins to teach as they enjoy a meal together. Look at verse 44. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is similar to the thing Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, just a few verses earlier, that the scriptures point to him. He makes a bold claim. He says that the entirety of the Old Testament, when he says the prophets, the psalms, and the law, that's the totality of the Old Testament. Those are the three divisions of the Old Testament. He's saying the, the whole of scripture up to that point, because they didn't have the New Testament, the whole of Scripture is about me. Everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It is through the life, it is through his death and resurrection that fulfillment has come as the fulfillment of the great expectations of the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised Christ. He is the much-anticipated Messiah. He is the long-awaited Savior. The Old Testament scriptures are a giant arrow pointing to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of it all, the messianic fulfillment. The language is similar to what we read earlier because Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he is the Christ. He is the one, capital T, capital O. Verse 44, he said all things written concerning himself had to be fulfilled, and then in verse 46, he's saying, um, you have seen this fulfillment. You are witnessing right now in this moment the fulfillment of all of this. Look at verse 46. He says, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's exactly what they're experiencing. This is the third day they're in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And as witnesses to this, what are they to do? As witnesses of the risen Christ, what are they to do? Well, they, they have just witnessed the conclusive, redeeming act of God in his son, Jesus Christ. And here's how Jesus continues in verse 47. What are they to do? He says, the repentance for, he says, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The right response from the disciples is to proclaim this good news to others. 
the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the redeeming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is incredible news. It's good news and it has to be told. It has to be told. You could say this is, this is Luke's version of the Great Commission. But those who are sent to proclaim the good news to the nations, beginning with their neighbors, he says, in Jerusalem you start and then you go to the nations. Those who are sent to proclaim the good news, that's both them then and us today. It's, we don't do it and make it about us. We're not attracting people to ourselves. And we don't go it alone. It's not up to our own charisma and our own craftiness and our own skills and our ability to answer all the questions and our intelligence. We make that the excuse for not telling people all the time because we're terrified. But, but we're not to, it's not in our power we do any of this. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear in verse 49. He says you're going to do this once you are clothed with power from on high. Look at verse 49. He says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Those men and women who come to faith in Jesus Christ, who are born again, who are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are given a power beyond ourselves, that the presence of God dwells within us, and it's in that power that we become the witnesses of God to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Verse 49 marks the very end of that first Easter Sunday. And so as Jesus is wrapping up this teaching, he's wrapping up this whole day, there's this connection between the going of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. One scholar puts it this way. He says, It is as a consequence of his royal exalted status that Jesus is able to commit to his followers the Holy Spirit. Theologically for Luke, then, the ascension is the prelude of the outpouring of the Spirit and a con and consequent mission of the church. In other words, Jesus had to go so the Spirit would come and mission would happen. This is the mission of the church. The redeemed people of God, them then and us today, we are to be his witnesses to the nations, beginning with our very neighbors. And then we get to the text that we read at the beginning. This was just by way of setup so we could teach the text. Beginning in verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany. This was the origin of the triumphal entry, and it's now the, the, the location of Christ's final exaltation. And lifting up his hands, as a priest would lift up his hands, Jesus blesses them. And while he blesses them, he parts from them, and he's carried up into heaven. Jesus blesses his disciples. If you go into the book of, of Acts, which Luke also wrote, he gives us more substance, more information about this day. He summarizes it in just a couple of verses here. And the ascension of Christ, though we talk about it, and, 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 and I'm guilty of talking about the ascension of Christ without pausing and having my mind blown by the reality of the ascension of Christ. Because it's something I've learned. I heard it in church. I saw it on family graphs. I just, just to pause and think about Jesus' physical body rising from the earth, wrapped in clouds, and ascending into heaven. It's insane. It's insane. Luke talked about it earlier in his gospel. In chapter 9, he, he, he gave us hints that this would, be, that this would happen. Luke records at the transfiguration as Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. They're talking about his departure, Luke says. Then later on in chapter 9, as, Jesus, as Luke is adding a kind of a commentary note, that Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem. And I think the exact language says that, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. So the ascension shouldn't shock us that Luke records it. In fact, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels that start the New Testament, this is the only gospel that speaks of the ascension of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus has left causes us to pause and look back at those final words of Jesus. The departure of Jesus heightened the importance of his final words for the church. Think about when you were a kid and your parents were going to go on a date 
and they were going to leave you with a babysitter. And they would give you final words like, listen, if you forget everything else I said, don't forget this, do the dishes, or whatever it was. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm about to leave, and I'm going to speak the most important truths that need to be heightened in your heart. These are my final words to you for now. And he speaks to them this missional command to proclaim the good news to the nations. And then he departs. One theologian puts it this way. Uh, as Jesus ascends to the very throne of heaven, he says, The glory and regal power anticipated of Jesus is now made visible for his followers, and they are thus provided with, it, with incontrovertible evidence that Jesus' humility and humiliation on the cross, far from, was disqualifying. He says, God's verdict reverses the, and supersedes the verdict of those who rejected, condemned, and executed Jesus. And now as Jesus ascends into heaven, this is where he resides. At this moment, the very throne of heaven. And then we see the response of these apostles. They worshipped him. They had great joy. They returned to Jerusalem. They were in the temple continually praising God. Let's look at those four aspects of what, I think it gives us, a, I think of the word worship in, in general terms. And when I look at the substance of what these men and women are doing, these four things, I think the totality of what we see them doing in these final two verses inform the way we ought to think of worship as the church today. So in response to the risen and ascended Christ, first and foremost, if you're a note taker, we see the worship of Jesus. First four words of verse 52, they worshiped him. I'm not a Greek expert, but this Greek word is where we get the word prostrate from, this, this word for worship. To, to kiss the hand of a royal, to fall on your face, touch your forehead to the ground as an expression of profound reverence for, for a royalty. That's the picture of worship that's taking place on the top of the Mount of Olives on this day. And if you look at Luke's gospel up to this point, worship is reserved for God alone, right? Not for images, not for the devil, not for other mortals. If you look at even the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, when the devil takes Jesus in the wilderness, or, or the spirit leads Jesus out to the wilderness, and then the devil comes to tempt Jesus. Do you remember when he was trying to tempt Jesus to bow down before him? And, and the Satan says, I will give you all, all, all the, uh, the power over all the nations of the earth. And he's trying to get Jesus to worship him, Satan is. Do you remember the retort that Jesus gave him when he quoted uh, Deuteronomy 6? Jesus says to Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus is aware, very aware, that, that worship alone belongs to God. And here in our text, it's the first time we see in Luke's gospel, it's worship of Jesus. Worship is to Jesus. Uh, it's, uh, these, these disciples, after 23 and a half chapters of struggling to figure out who he is and, and what he's doing, this, this picture of these disciples worshiping Jesus... It signifies that at last they've recognized him for who he is. He is God in the flesh, and he is deserving of worship. And when people see Jesus as he really is, the only right response is worship. And I think positionally of what this must have looked like, this, this, I think of the, the disciples prostrate on their face before Jesus as he's being exalted into heaven. This picture of men and women, mortals, on their face before the immortal, sovereign God as he's being lifted up to the throne of heaven. This is a picture of, of worship. He is to increase, we are to decrease. It was true then and it's true today. He, he, he's lifted up, we are to, to bow figuratively and literally in reverent awe of who he is, of, of his saving power, of, of, of the ministry of Christ. He, he is to made, be made much of, he's to be exalted, and this is how worship is, is to look. And so when we go on mission for Jesus, when we, when we go out to share Jesus with the world or, uh, around us, we do so by lifting up Jesus. 
But lifting up the gospel, he is to be the focus. We're not winning people to ourselves. We're not winning people to our church with our little placard in front of our church, our brand. We're not winning people to our worldview or our political party. We're winning people to Jesus Christ, the risen, sovereign, reigning king of the universe, who has defeated death and sin, who invites us into his family. As a miracle of grace that by his shed blood we are washed clean of our sins and we are made new and whole and born again and given an eternal promise. We hold that up and on our faces with reverent awe, everything we can just exalt him. Like, see Jesus. Oh my God, just see, just see him. Don't see me. See him. He is worthy of praise. He is beautiful. And this is what our ministry is to look like. And this is what our worship is to look like. And this is what our devotional life is to look like. It's about him. In our evangelism and in our mission, we are introducing people to the only one who is worthy of worship. Because when, when people see Jesus for who he really is, the only right response is worship. Secondly, in response to the risen and ascended Christ, we see obedience to the words of Jesus. They, they return to Jerusalem. In verse 49, Jesus told them, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And so the disciples respond to the ascension of Jesus by remembering and clinging to his words. There was no confusion about who he was or about his authority They had finally seen Jesus for who he really is, and with desperation and with devotion, these disciples are like, what did he tell us? Everything he said to us for the last three years, we have to cling to that like it's gold, it's treasure, it's truth, it's the very words of the living God. What did he say? Well, well, the first thing he said is we have to go to Jerusalem, and we have to wait to be clothed with power from on high. So let's go. Whatever he told us to do, let's do it. There's, There's no greater voice to be obedient to than that voice. And then if you look at the first church in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 2, after Peter proclaims the gospel in the streets of Jerusalem, do you remember how, how Luke describes the first church in Luke 2.42? He says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The apostles weren't teaching their own words. They were simply regurgitating the very words of Jesus that had been taught to them in their three-year apprenticeship or the three years of discipling under his leadership. And then, by God's grace and by the power of God's Spirit, he inspired those same men to write down exactly what they'd heard Jesus say and what they had saw Jesus do, and he's preserved that for us in the New Testament. This is the apostolic word. This is the witness of those same apostles that we put ourselves under the same word today. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. That's why, that's why the Bible is such a big deal. It's the very word of God. It's the very words of God for us today. We are to live in obedience to the words of Jesus, in obedience to the scriptures. And in our passage, the very first act of obedience we see from those apostles is to say, what did he tell us to do? Go to Jerusalem. Let's go. When we see Jesus for who he really is, the only right response is worship and to cling to his every word. Thirdly, we see great joy. In response to the risen and ascended Christ, there's just great joy. They says they went to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple worshiping God. And I think about living on mission for Jesus, like, is to have a great joy. And, I, and I, look, my personality is one where I, I'm a serious-minded guy. I wasn't always. The older I've gotten, I've become more serious-minded. I remember when I was interviewing, or when I got the job here, I was talking to Dan Ashworth, and uh, Dan wasn't a part of the interviews, but Dan was saying that the, the elders let him look at some of the interviews that were recorded on uh, social, or on, like, Zoom. And, and Dan's response to watching my interviews was like, does that guy ever turn it off? Like, he is so intense. And I was shocked that someone would perceive me as intense, because I, I lack that much self-awareness, which is not uh, an encouraging thing to say about myself. And, and there are times when I think I'm so intense, I'm passionate about 
the things that God has called us to do that I think sometimes my life doesn't reflect the joy that I feel for Jesus. This ridiculous joy, it's like, man, you lift your eyes up in the morning, you sit on the edge of your bed, and, and as we were, I was talking to some of you earlier in, this, in, the, in the lobby, and the older you get, you just start to see the depravity of the world, and more people you love are dying, and, and it just seems like things are getting so bad, and, and boy, I'm tempted like everybody to, to draw my eyes down from the glory of God and, and look at the ugliness and the stress and the nastiness of the world and let it rob my joy, but it's like, wait a second, no! When I get up in the morning, it's like, ah, there is a God who is sovereign over all of us, like the song that Mitch just had us sing. Like, he's unshakable. The world may shake. He is unshakable. He's sovereign. He's today. He's tomorrow. He's, he is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. And he loves me. He's revealed himself to me. I'm, I'm loved and redeemed and forgiven and made new. I'm a child of God. There is great joy in that truth. And how tempting it is for us at times. How tempting it is for us to pursue false joys, isn't it? You know, it's like, I think... You know, because we can't, I don't, I, I don't touch Jesus physically like the apostles did in the story. You know, it's, it's, it's a faith in, in an unseen God. And, and, but man, some of these other things in the world that are claiming to give me joy, I can touch those things. I can see them. There's roads, actual roads I can walk down in pursuit of something I think is, is joy. But in the end, it's, it's, it's like eating ho-hos, right? It tastes good for a minute, but it leads to your death. It's no good in the long run. How many, if we were to just have a conversation today and I was going to say, hey, tell me some mistakes that you've made in your life trying to find joy in the wrong place. We could share war stories all day long. Inappropriate relationships, unhealthy relationships, pursuing significance through career, through financial gain, through reputation, keeping up with the Joneses, through physical appearance, beauty. I mean, all day long, we turn to false joys. Despite all of that, doesn't matter your bank account, doesn't matter your beauty, doesn't matter your fame or lack thereof. If you're hearing the gospel message of Jesus, that you are loved and redeemed through him, it means he's for you and he loves you. And it's an amazing sovereign act of God to open your eyes to that truth and you are to have great joy. The last thing we see is we see the continual praise of God in response to the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, we see that these men and women went back to Jerusalem and were continually in the temple blessing God. That, that word that it's translated blessing can also be translated praise, and different translations have, have it going different ways. But the picture here is, is like a two-way picture. It's of people praising God with their whole lives. I mean, they are worshiping God, they're being obedient, or worshiping Jesus, they're being obedient to the words of Jesus. They have great joy just flowing from them, and they are continually in the temple just, just praising God, like, oh my God, you have saved me, you're sovereign, you're ascended, you're on the throne, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. While, while the earthly kingdoms can shake, and, and, and while, while Caesar, and while, while Nero can bring just harsh death upon the church, like, you don't shake, you are a sovereign, your kingdom is the everlasting kingdom, my hope is in you. I'm a, I'm a foreigner here on planet earth, I'm an exile. My hope is not in earthly kingdoms. I'm the citizen of a future kingdom, and my king is on the throne. And no matter what happens in this life, I have great joy, and I can worship the risen king. And I'm going to be obedient to every word that he says. And when, that, that is just, when that's in you, and that truth is informing your daily life, it's just continual praise. Like, God, praise God. Praise God. Biden, you're an idiot. Praise God that Jesus is not. Trump, you're an idiot. Praise God that King Jesus is not. Whatever your issue may be, it's just incredible to me. And there's this continual praise of God. And as the people are praising him, 
The other translation of the word is bless. As God looks down on his people who are fully satisfied in him and not earthly things, he is blessed by that. As a loving father watches his child on Christmas morning being fully satisfied in a very thoughtful gift, as a father watches from his chair as his son is playing with this toy that he thought about and worked hard to provide, and there's that moment of a, of a contentment in the father's heart because the child is just praising their dad, dad, thank you. And the father is so blessed by the satisfaction he sees in his son because he gives his son good gifts. This is the picture here of the church in the temple. They're satisfied fully in who God is. And God is so overjoyed that his children are satisfied in him. That's the picture. Luke's gospel is, is bookended with praise of God. Think of the shepherds who went down and they saw Jesus at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And they give glory to God over what they'd seen in the manger. Think of the angels that descended from on high, the heavenly host. The first words out of their mouth were glory to God in the highest. Think of Mary when she was pregnant and she interacted with Elizabeth. The first words out of her in the Magnificat is to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Think of Simeon in the temple who has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. When he held baby Jesus eight days old, he holds him up and we see that, that Simeon blessed God. Think of Anna the prophetess who, who has been worshiping and praying and fasting in the temple day and night. When she encountered Jesus, she gave thanks to God. And here at the very end of the gospel, we see people yet again praising God, glorifying King Jesus. They glorified him and praised God at his advent, and now they glorify and praise him at his ascension, and there'll be a day he comes back, and we will glorify and praise King Jesus between now and then, and then we will, we will glorify and praise King Jesus for all of eternity. Because when you see Jesus as he really is, but God, by your Holy Spirit, for all of us listening, God, by your Holy Spirit, through the faithful handling of your word, God, would you open our eyes in this moment as your church to see you as you really are. Because when we do, the only right response is worship. This is a picture of a life that is entirely transformed, that is centered around the worship of Jesus, centered around obedience to his teachings, centered around uh, praising him and being filled with great joy. This is the picture of what it means to be a disciple. And so I think about us as a church today. I think about where we are in the history of our church. I think about the work that, you know, my wife and I, we moved here 14 months ago, and it has been, I mean, just for an hon a moment of honesty, it has been an incredible 14 months. I've loved this church. You've been so kind to our family, so loving and welcoming. This feels like our home. You're my family. And to, and to walk alongside the staff and the congregation and be a part of this family, to see what God is doing here is so, is so unbelievably joyous for us. And I think about the work we've done over the last year, praying, seeking God's face, that God, what would you have our church to do in this next season? As elders, as staff, as congregants, we have sought God's face. God, what, what do you want from us? How can we be obedient to what you want us to do? So we, we have this, this strategic plan, which sounds like such a stupid thing to say, you know, in, in light of King Jesus on the throne. I think about the series that we just did on giving the greatest gift and trying try, try to call our church to live missionally for the glory of God. I think about our deep desire as a church to make disciples. We're a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I think about our desire to see disciples shaped and formed that, that have faith in Jesus Christ, are being shaped and formed and, and molded into the image of Jesus Christ, and are learning to lead others to know and follow Jesus Christ. These are all our plans, all our hopes, all our dreams, and all of it. All our dreams, all our wishes, everything we hope to see God do, if it does not flow from authentic worship of Jesus, it is nothing. 
All of that, all the plans, all the things we want to build, all the strategic plans we want to put together, all the neighbors we want to tap their shoulders of, all the, all the people we want to host in our homes, all the work we want to do for God, it is not about us. It has to flow from worship. It has to be a free will offering to God, a pleasant aroma that, that as the Father looks down, he, there's just pleasure in, in our satisfaction in who He is. And, and because we're so satisfied in Him and we are so over, overjoyed and in love with Him, we just give our lives back to Him as an act of worship. And it's in light of that offering to God, that's worship of His church, that's the church that makes disciples. That's the family that is transformed. That's the home from which disciples are sent. That's the church that influences the city, not for their own glory. They're not concerned about the name on the letterhead. They're concerned about the name of Jesus. That's the church we want to be. And so as we gather here for these next few moments, I'm going to invite Mitch back up to the stage. Here's my hope. My my hope today is simply this. As we come to the end of 2021, as we head into 2022, as you think about your life individually, you think about your, your life familially, like in your family, you think about your neighborhood, you think about our church corporately, you think about what God is doing in other churches, in his churches across our valley, across the globe, my hope is that together we will look to Jesus, respond to him in worship, because when we see Jesus for who he really is, the only right response is worship. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the saints you've gathered here today and the saints you've gathered online. I'm thankful for the work you're doing in and through our local church, Heritage Christian Fellowship. God, I'm thankful for the work you're doing through many, many healthy, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving local churches in our area. God, I'm thankful for what you're doing in your church to the ends of the earth this morning. God, would you do what you got to do in our hearts and in our minds and in our leadership and in our lives? By the power of your spirit, God, would you open our eyes to see you this morning for who you authentically really are. You are the risen, ascended king who sits on the throne. You are a triune God who is active and at work on planet earth today. You're active and at work in our midst today, God. So would you just allow us, God, would you do a work in us through your spirit even right now over the next few moments as we sing a few songs, God. Would this be a sound that is pleasing to you, God? Would the worship that's flowing from our heart, apart from our mouth, be be something that is pleasing to you, God? Would you allow us today in this moment, God, to praise you? And oh God, would you please be blessed by our praises? We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.